What happens when a guy from the city accidentally contacts a guy from the country? It's not what you think. They strike up a conversation and same difference is created. JD and Corey talk the whole gamut of life as they each see it through the prism of race. One is a six foot four black man and one is a five foot four white man. Tune in and find out which is which. Agree or disagree, they will make you think, strike emotional chords, and more. Stick around. You might just learn something. Welcome to Same Difference with your hosts, JD and Corey. We're sharing our stories and how our stories impacted our approach to life. We take our perspectives into having dialogue about real life topics. Welcome back, everybody. My name is Corey May, and you are here on Same Difference Podcast. My tag team partner is right next to me, and this is the good doctor, J.D. Mass. Doctor, say something. Thank you, Corey. How are you today? I am well. It is cold, cold, cold up here in Iowa. I'm telling you, it was uh, when I woke up this morning, I just saw a big fat zero, and then looked at the wind chill and it was minus 14 so <clears throat> welcome back to the midwest my friend right well, Thanks, florida would probably sound really good right now it, it would like i said i'm the only big dummy that went down there for the spring and summer and came back here for the winter so uh <laughs> yep it is uh it is definitely eye-opening and yet also uh gives you reason to be thankful for having a roof over your head that's for sure amen amen speaking of things about which we should be thankful mm-hmm. i think we've got a couple of shout outs to to give would you care to yeah. start kiana the goddess dj fmi uh vpr radio we can't do this without you we appreciate you um by the time this episode airs, I'm going to encourage everybody to go see our most recent um, interview with them. I believe that will have taken place by the time this one gets on the air. Otherwise, it's coming up in a couple of days. Um, <clears throat> and yes, I'm just thankful for them and and uh, and thankful for you and, and the fact that we put this together and we are... Uh, starting to really bond here and and the flow is getting better and better each time so i'm taking notice i think our audience is taking notice and uh yeah we got a great thing so tell everybody about it spread the word and let's keep the conversation going let me uh, echo your thanks thanks to kiana and dj fmi thank you for you my good friend soon well better friend and thanks for all of our audience members one of the things that keeps coming out in communications between audience members and and us is we really appreciate the authenticity of your conversations and i want to remind everybody none of this is scripted you are getting to know us at the exact same time that we are getting to know each other Let's take that one step further. It is because we are listening to understand each other as opposed to listening to respond to each other. JD and I, for whatever reason, we've got this wonderful chemistry and it's because we are listening to each other, not listening at each other. We are not talking at each other. We are talking with each other. And this is what can happen when you lay down your arms and you genuinely listen to each other and find that common ground. With that, JD, you left us last episode or the episode before the King episode with the fact that you were not going back to the Ohio State University and your mother said, no, you're not coming back. Oh, she said more than no. <laughs> <laughs> she, she said, 
F no. But um so yeah, that that was a time, you know, your very first year of trying to figure out, you know, what are you gonna be like as an adult? Um, you have temptations that you've never had to uh experience before. And um, you know, I uh I got into trouble and and I recall one night at Ohio State, and this was kind of the nail in the coffin night, especially once she saw my drugs. But my mom came to visit me on Mother's Day weekend, of course. Oh. And it was bitter cold. And when you come into our dorms, there's two tables set up in almost like a V-like way, right? Like the dorm window, the dorm doors are wide to enter. And then you have to kind of go through and past. I won't even call them security. They're just older RAs sitting at the front. And they're supposed to touch your ID. Now, mind you, this is spring. We've been there all year. These are the same people. They know who we are. We come in and out, me and Andy, my friend. And we're coming in. And uh, they won't touch, they didn't touch his ID. And so, like, you got to be kidding me. And they, like, stopped. And and then they went to reach for my ID. And I'm like, you've seen us. We Matter of fact, we I think we had come in and out earlier that night already with the same people. Right. And they didn't touch his ID. And he was just frustrated. And I started dancing my ID around so they couldn't touch it. And they said, shut the elevators off. Well, he lives on the 23rd floor. I live on the 20th floor and the door wells are shut. So we can't get up. So I'm pissed at this point. You're not going to just stop me from going into my room when you know me, all of this, that, and the other. Yeah. I'm not thinking maybe they just don't like us and maybe I should not be (laughs) causing any ruckus. So I go and there's a desk. Now, mind you, I'm five foot three and a half, so I can round up to four. But this desk comes up to, you know, like my armpit chest size. And there's a guy about six foot behind the desk. And he's like, no, I'm not going to let you up. And so I go, huh, and I flinch at him, you know. And back then that was something to do to try and get somebody to jump. And, you know, we played that game think nothing of it. Andy's like, let's roll out. And we roll out and we go out and have a good night. Come back and they let us up. No problem. Everything's good. We go up to Andy's room and we get a call. The police are in your room, Jesse, and they're looking for you. What? So I have to run down there. The police have everybody, like the room is full of smoke. All of the the roommates had been smoking weed and everything and they are just going in on me and hey so what happened and what do you do and i'm like man this is ridiculous all i did was flinch at the kids so they put me in the room is there anything in your room and i'm no i'm not telling you there's anything in my room well we're gonna go through your room okay well i can't stop you because you got me in the elevator And they just act like they're going through my room and they're just asking me over and over again, is there anything you want to tell us about? Da, 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 da. And no, I don't have anything. And I'm blah, blah, blah. And they take me down to the station and I tell the story of what happened. And I tell them, like, I flinched at the kid and I write it out and I'm 18 years old. Right. And I get an attorney who actually taught at the school to come down my father might have used his networks or whatever to get the attorney and he comes down to the court now mind you sorry i'm going to jail let me take a step back and it's mother it's the eve of mother's day night oh oh my mom has no idea why her son hasn't come back. And it's one, two in the morning, three in the morning. And she is walking around this hotel property, like outside in the cold, pacing, freaking out and gets a call from my RA or somehow calls my RA and says what happened. And they said, well, he was arrested. And so here she is like, oh, this son of mine. So. 
I get to bond myself out with a credit card and make it to her. And obviously, the rest of that trip was not a pleasant one. Right, right. So, fast forward, uh, this lawyer, because this will be important later, this lawyer cusses me out at the courthouse, like, you know, whenever my arraignment was. How dare you write out what happened? How dare you speak to the police? What in the heck is wrong with you? And I'm like, what you mean? I didn't do anything. I flinched at a kid. You assaulted somebody because you admitted to it. Assault is not touching them. It's battery when you touch them. Assault is the threat of touching them. And you admitted to it. You never admit to it. What is the rules of when they read you your Miranda rights? Anything you say can and will be used, and he screams down the hall, against you. And oh, I'm, snap. Huh. Good point. Never going to happen again. Mm. And so taking that one, that bit of information, they actually found me guilty, put me on probation, and I had a year of probation, although I didn't have to like check in with a probation officer or anything. It was a misdemeanor crime. But I didn't even know they had put me on probation until I found like a letter years later. And I had obviously cleared it and, and whatnot. But yeah, they were they were after me because when that night when they came in there and there were smokers and they said, well, where did you get it? I was the easy target. That's why they were screaming at me and this, that, and the other, where we have something, we found stuff in your room. And I was like, okay, well, you already found it. Why do you need me to tell you what you got? So lesson learned about interactions with the police and, and everything. Um, and so fast forward now, mom has told me you're never going back there. My friends have you know, graduated from high school with me. They've been out a year or two. And this is about the time when, when gangs and drugs and, I mean, and, and guns were starting to really become more and more prevalent in our neighborhoods. And so my friends had gotten a hold of some guns, you know, and had, we've had beef with some neighboring neighborhoods and everybody's claiming a blood or a crip at this point and so we got into it with some neighboring blood gangs and i mean there had been some shoots shootouts you know in the middle of certain streets at night and nobody had gotten hit yet and whatnot and so we had these guns and yet we're sitting at my mom's house one day she's out of town and we're you know just kicking it and smoking blunts in the backyard and just having a good time and one of my closest friends gets a phone call. I'll leave everybody's name out. But he gets a phone call from his family that his little brother, who was about four or five years younger than us, got into a fight at school. And I would say this was like fifth. He was in the fifth grade. Mm. And on the way home, the father of that kid he fought grabbed him held him down and made his son pick up a pole and hit him in the head while this, while this kid was on the ground. Oh, and so when we go to the house, the two friends and I, we see like half of his face just swollen up and we go. And, uh, so now we got guns at our access. So we like, okay, well, we're going to go around there and see if we can talk to him. So me kind of knowing better, but wanting to be supportive friend, I drive and we go around there. Mind you, this is a street that connects to our school. We're two blocks away from our high school, one block away from Christ the King school. And quick question, quick question. Um, maybe sure. it's not relevant, but where'd you get the guns? Just off the streets? Off the streets. Yeah. Okay. And uh, another thing, um, later, just tell me what it felt like 
to have the guns. So for me, I've always been afraid of them. My dad, like, hated guns so much, he refused to let us have water guns as a child. Got it. Right? So I remember the first night they made me come go out, and we went out into the middle of the park and shot it in the air, and it frightened the crap out of me. I, I mean, I might not have explained that to them at the time, um, but yeah, I've it never felt good. Okay. Right. So, but we got three little 22s, 25s, 350, whatever kind of guns. And uh, I think we had a, or I don't even remember what the numbers is. I want to say 350 or three something, but a small little handgun. And we had an extra long clip. And so uh, we go. And so the guy, the street, has parking in the middle of the lanes that go in either direction and it's parking at an angle. And so we park about four houses down. And as we're walking up, the grandmother is out on the porch yelling at us. We don't want any trouble. And so one of my friends whose brother it was, was like, look at his face. What do you mean you don't want any trouble? You brought trouble to this. This was a fight between two kids and an adult got involved. So now we got to get involved. And the father goes into the house, comes back out with a shotgun, pumps it, grabs his mother, pulls her into the house and points the gun at us. And we're on in three separate angles. So he pointed it at uh, the one friend who was talking, who was really trying to be peaceful, but also saying, we're not going to take any shit. And before I knew it, I just start hearing gun sounds. I hear the big shotgun go off. I hear some little guns go off. I I believe, I mean, and I kind of turned away and started to run back to the car. And before I knew it, they came running past me and they were like, give me your gun grab my gun. I'm hopping in the car. They hopped the fences and ran back to their house. This was blocks from where we live. And as I'm pulling off, the police come 11 cars deep. Dang. And the police came and they like, you know, get out the car behind me. They got the cars in front of me. They got the cars coming on the side streets. They got cars everywhere. And uh, so I'm blocked in and the guy behind me yells, put your hands out of the car. So I put my hands out of the car. He's like, now open the door. So I reach my hand in and I hear click, click. I didn't say put your hands back in the car. Open the door from the outside so we can see your hands. So I do that. I'm like, sorry, first time. I don't know what I'm doing here. And he walks up to me. They slam me against the car. They put my hands behind my back and he walks up to me and he's got the gun still cocked. And he's and I start and I turn to see how close he is. And I'm about three inches from the barrel of the gun looking down the barrel. And I was like, oh, man, this guy could sneeze and my head is gone. And so he's yelling at me. And the finally the captain or sergeant or whatever, the the highest ranking officer came and he grabs the barrel of the gun and he starts to shake it like, put this thing away. And I was like, oh, my God, what are we doing? Well, they found a clip. Thankfully, it was fully loaded in the back of the car and they put me into the back of the car and the, the sergeant or whatever highest ranking officer captain, I think, at the time is in there screaming at me in the car. You better start talking. You better start telling me what the hell happened. What are you even doing over here? What is going on? And just screaming at me. And I'm not saying shit. I'm just stone faced staring at him because all I'm thinking about is anything you can, anything you say can and will be used against you. Right. Right. And he's screaming at me. Um, He's like, I'm the only friend you got. So after a while, he realizes he's not going to get anything out of me. He's like, oh, you want to be tough. Well, we're just going to throw the whole extent of the law at you. Ba, 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 ba. And he takes me down to the station. And my father gets the call. And I can only imagine his heart dropping 
like this was not what he imagined ever for his children. Right, right. And so he comes down to the station and he gets to in, take me into the interrogation room and he is screaming at the top of his lungs as one could imagine being upset. But I'm like, we're in the interrogation room and he's like, no, you're going to tell me what the and screaming, he had a gun, such and such, had a gun, are you effing crazy? I didn't raise you kids to be like, what the? And I'm like, dude, shut up. Just like, you can do all of this, just not here. We're going to get in worse trouble. And he's just screaming at me. Well, when the police came to talk to me and said, are you gonna, you know, ask a statement, the first thing they said is, we wish you would have shot that guy because we've been having trouble with him for a long time. No way. Wow, what a statement to say. So you wanted me to, you wanted us to shoot him so we could be easy enough targets to go to jail, but then at least get this menace off the street. street? Are you, <laughs> are you aware that these things come out of your mouth so comfortably? So that was, it was a, just a, Truly eye-opening experience. I hate to downplay it like it wasn't, you know, I'm very grateful that nothing else came of it. I, my father's close friend was a very uh, high-profile um, defense attorney, and he basically, I didn't have to hire him because my first day of consultation, he said the best thing, the best thing was that you had a loaded clip in your back, and it was loaded, so there's no proof that you were the one shooting or anybody in there was shooting and so <clears throat> i think they eventually ended up finding out who the other two of my friends were but they brought them up on very lesser charges and it ended up getting pleaded out because then you you know that's the the way the system works we just plea you out even if we don't have enough evidence we start screaming that we do and uh, and so they both got on probation, from what I believe, if I remember correctly. So what happened to the young man who got hit in the face by the pole? Oh, he 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 healed. He's good. He's uh, you know he's close friend still, and and um, yeah, he he healed up. But uh, yeah, the whole thing was rather traumatic. I would imagine so. And with regard to the dad with the shotgun and the grandmother, did uh, did you hear anything about how that got resolved? No, um, I know that, you know, we tried to stay away from that block for a while just in case he was uh, crazy enough to want revenge. I remember my best friend's and I talking one night and just talking about, um, you know, that night. And one of them was like, man, I had a gun. Like, I could have taken somebody's life that day. And I don't care what he did. Like, yeah, of course I was angry about what he did to my brother. But I could have taken a life that day. Like, man, this is too much. This gun shit is too much. And I was so happy to hear him say that because... I was afraid to say that amongst my friends, but that's how truly I feel. Like we are so quick to go grab a gun to solve our problems and 99.9997% of that doesn't need a gun to solve that problem, to end and to make a permanent decision about trying to end somebody's life yeah, over yeah. that, right? <clears throat> And right. so that, it, you know, there'll be another story uh, of gun usage um, later on. But, uh, yeah, that, that was a very turning, pivotal point for me. And so my punishment was my parents and my father especially, because my mom's not really great at standing on her punishments. But my dad was like, no, for the next year, you aren't allowed to go out of this house and my room was in the basement. Um, uh, you aren't allowed to leave this house. Your friends may come over in a while, 
But other than to go to work and to go to school, you will be on your own, on my rules of house arrest. And I was like, yes, sir. I, I knew it was what I needed. And um, I would go to work driving uh, for Papa John's Pizza mm-hmm. and uh, delivery. And I would go to night school at Webster University. And I was able to get my study habits and study skills tested and proven and uh, spent one year um, in his basement. Well, the first semester in his basement, the second semester in my mother's house, um, uh, where towards midpoint of that semester, I kind of got a little more leeway and a little more leeway, much to the chagrin of my father. Um, But uh, I, you know, got a 3.5. I don't think I've ever had a better GPA than that year. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, you talk about scared straight. I was scared straight, at least for that time. So let's look at some other contributing factors. So you had been in University City, and it seemed like it was this island of sanity, right? Mm-hmm. Safe neighborhood. What precipitated the movement of of uh, guns to encroach, to invade this this seemingly safe space? So as I mentioned, uh, U-City, like St. Louis, from south to north, goes from wealthier white to poor black, right? So the, uh, the south is where the the wealthy whites are, mm-hmm. and the north is where uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, poor black, black folks? Community, yep. Yeah. And, um, and I hate the term poor because that's a mind state. So I, I will rephrase that as lower income. Thank right? you. I'll and, take that. And, um, and so, you know, in, I, I know this is very hard for most of us who don't really go into these communities to really know, but guns are dumped into these areas, Right. Drugs are made easy to get into the areas and then they are targeted for criminalization, right? And so given that U-City is also kind of in the county and the county still got a little more wealth than than the the, um, city and all of these things and colors came out and, you know, we had people who had access to get to California and bring drugs to the city of St. Louis through University City. So it was kind of known for also on one side for drug selling as well uh, by those that uh, had access at a large scale. Right. And so um, with that, came the need to protect yourself and with that came the the oh he's got a gun well then that's the cool thing becomes i'm getting a gun and you know the guns give this false sense of coolness guns give a false sense of of uh courage you know and um and i've seen it white black and different it doesn't matter it's an american cultural thing of this false sense of toughness because you got a gun which is the weakest (laughs) shit in the world right like going to get a gun to solve your problems is not tough at all and i've said this before on some of my posts it's really a weak thing but you're 18 19 and you're getting access to these things and you're figuring out what adulthood is like and you're seeing these pictures painted on the news and in movies and in you know whatever culture that you know the music business that's been allowed to uh glorify black death for the longest and you're just you know you're angry that society's built this way and you got to take your anger out and all of these contributing factors go into where we get it and then they dump i mean literally truck loads come and sell guns from like other 
places and whether they've collected them through the police collections or whatever, they often make themselves back out into uh, black communities. And so the more we get into this cycle of, well, if he has a gun and he's a threat to me, I need a gun to protect myself. And then you just start getting into this mentality. When you have an, a weapon, part of the mentality is, I wish I, I wish somebody would right, right now, right, right. right? It, it becomes that kind of thing. And so I've seen it uh, on multiple levels of that. And that's, <clears throat> so that, that year, that summer really scared the bejeebies out of me. And I wish it scared me even more to take a stronger stance on a story I'll tell a little later, but um, yeah, that was uh that was a big one. So the environment is ripe when we don't have uh, for neighborhoods to to get overrun by these sorts of things is when lack of jobs uh lack of affordable housing um what other circumstances might contribute to this being an so, area where it gets dumped, where the guns and the drugs get dumped? Right. But it's not just a lack of, right? Because it's, it's also on the flip side that America is such a consumer-based place right. that you see all this consumerism going on and you can't participate. And so the temptations become more and more. And now you're not just measuring what you don't have, but you're measuring what you don't have in comparison to somebody else. And you're seeing fancy cars and you're seeing these other things. And you're saying to yourself, well, why are they worthy of it? And I'm not. And you start to develop these, right? And so the quickest way to make money is not is not just the fact that, oh, I don't have a job or whatever. It's that, oh, easily I could sell this drugs that somehow made it all the way for me to be able to pick up. Right. And I need to pay my bills. And I want those fancier things. And so the temptations become there. And let me tell you, when you have, you know, a weapon, you do feel a false sense of, I wish somebody would. I've, I'm stronger now, right? Mm -hmm. It evens the playing field if you're short and you're, you know, it, you know, it makes people feel tougher. Who's not afraid to go to jail? Who, you know, there's this big macho thing that, you know, our, our culture creates. And so you add the realness of weapons to that and you have something, uh, um, and you have this lack, this scarcity in, in these areas. And now I have a tool that I can go get something with. Now I have ways to go get that, that I'm lacking. And we know scarcity works. It's what started this culture, period. Right, so. right. Two more questions. First, were you, did you sell drugs in St. Louis? I allegedly participated in that because so many of my friends had access and and some of them did use it uh for either keeping a, you know their families fed or for um for <clears throat> getting to the next level where they could not have to anymore um uh and so at times i helped facilitate i wasn't necessarily out there pushing it as much although right. one at one point i had a job that made it easier um and we'll talk about these stories too to come uh so we're gonna yep go ahead you had another question second question looking back from where you are right now did being white help you save my ass are you kidding me? Without yeah, a doubt. I, I want like, to hear this. This. What, um, this is what I want white folks to understand. Like, they had no more evidence on me than they had on my friends about, like, you know, I mean, they found me at the scene. Right. They didn't find them. Now, they obviously, through the kids having the fight, they could identify that 
brother and blah, 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 and go. They didn't have anything. They didn't even get him that way. Mm-hmm. But yet he got in trouble. He got threatened. And if you can't afford an attorney, blah, 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 and all of this. So, of course, having the wealthier uh, parents, having the father who's an attorney with a solid name, all of these things. And yes, he was able to do what he could to kind of lessen the blow for them. Um, I mean, I remember one of them uh, one time came to me and, you know, he had been locked up in this and the uh, prison officer or whatever jail officer, I won't say prison, but jail officer kept saying, who the hell is this white man that keeps calling on on our, on your behalf? Like, what the hell is he doing? What what is he's not even saying he's your attorney. He's mm. like, yeah, well, he just loves us. So, yes, uh, without a doubt, it saved me. It gives me the benefit of the doubt where they have to prove their innocence and I have to be proven guilty. I think that's an incredibly powerful point that we need to keep amplifying. That's I. I I knew that was a softball question, but I also wanted to hear you explain that for our listeners. Powerful stories, JD. Powerful stories. Yep, we got to share them. I know. Uh, I know that um, even as my book was written, my parents read stories that they were unfamiliar with, uh, and this gets a little bit more in detailed they're pretty much familiar with most of the rest of everything else that i've been through um but on the drug selling side uh from what my friends participated and mostly we we stayed in the weed game a few of us though and then surrounding you know community friends so to speak that weren't in our clique uh were more heavily involved in in cocaine uh distribution but Um, uh, I know that they didn't have a clue that that was going on, nor did they know how much I knew or how much I saw and witnessed and all of that. So we got plenty more to tell, and I look forward to sharing it with the audience, not as a braggadocious thing, but as a hopeful uh, opportunity for learning. I, I agree. It was a wonderful cautionary tale. I, and I am hoping that our listeners are recognizing that we're not trying to brag. We're just simply trying to explain these are our life experiences. And because these are our life experiences, there's something that can be gained from that. Yeah. Wow. And and as we start to judge these famous people that uh, make it big at very young ages, they're still really young, man. Right. Like, I did some stupid stuff young, too. And, you know, I'm here to tell about it, thankfully. And right. some people do end up being able to tell about it, and others have to tell about it only amongst their jail cells. And so, it, you know, it's, it's real. The, let's give some grace to younger people that are going through questions about what they have to be as an adult. Agreed. That's a, JD, you've got some amazing stories. You have such a rich and incredible life that these stories are amazing. I I will not deny that. I'm not saying it to brag, but you can't shine, you know, hide your light and think you're going to uh, help anybody. So, I do. My journey is is incredible. And part of me sometimes just thinks I'm here for the journey to share with others so that somebody can do great things with this information. Agreed. Absolutely. Wow. All right, Mr. Corey, you yes, have sir. gone to Atlanta. You have been uh, around a different culture um, that that you struggled with um and you mentioned about your struggles and now you're back home in good old iowa and what does that summer look like for you 
so I fly out of Atlanta and I go to Washington, D.C., where my eldest sister lives. And I'm going to work construction out there. And this is this is great money. It's great money. Um, we're talking at the time, twelve fifteen dollars an hour, and at at uh, eighty six minimum wage is what three oh five. Yeah, four bucks. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm over the moon because I've got a little bit of wiggle money. I can I can do some things. Um, and going from Atlanta to Washington, D.C. isn't a big culture shock because what I'm dealing with now are we're dealing with some class issues and, uh, the people with whom I was working or the people for whom I was working were pretty much solidly middle-class. The people with whom I'm working are working class and lower middle class again getting steeped in the culture outstanding music the radio stations out there were again all the music that i wasn't hearing in iowa if i wanted to hear rock stations i could find a rock station this is for me again cultural and i've got some bitterness in me from being jumped at Morehouse. And I'm thinking I'm going to be safer at a predominantly white institution. And that's why I'm transferring back to Iowa. But something's changing in me because I'm finding a deeper need to understand the black side of me, right? And that may sound strange, there is a black side and a white side. The white side is how I survive in our dominant culture. So black people have to navigate in predominantly white spaces. Right. And it is a matter of our survival. How do we speak? How do we dress? How do we not attract more or undo attention to ourselves. And this is where I start to understand the subtle messages that they finally start to kick in. Um, part of being black in America is making white people comfortable around you. And you can't make white people uncomfortable or else it could be fatal. And and we know this historically, but Emmett Till happens in the 60s right. before I'm born. And it doesn't have the same impact yet. But when you're starting to get older and you move from boyishly cute to all of a sudden masculine and adult people sometimes would say to me at church oh where did the little boy that i knew go and here i am at six four i am now a man and all those fears that people have had about black people weren't placed on that little boy but as you get to be taller and bigger, all those fears can be projected onto you, right? So I'm starting to see that and I'm not aware of it, but I'm starting, I, I'm starting this journey, ironically, after having left Morehouse where all of these things could have been so easily vetted, dug out and, and explored, excavated and explored. I'm doing that here. And if you combine that uh, if you combine that with the fact that I'm still grieving dad and I don't have this firm black male image imprinted into my head. And mentors and role models happen at every age. They don't just 
happen at one age. You will ha- you will right. you will have a mentor and you may outgrow that mentor at 12 because your life path is taking you in a different way. They can still be a mentor, but they may not be your primary mentor, right? So uh, mentoring at the in the teens, mentoring in the 20s, 30s, 40s, everybody needs a coach at almost every age. If you're really trying to achieve something, you will need a coach to get there. Yep. I've worked in Washington now doing construction and it's a job that I will do for a number of summers because the money is better and it's absolutely a good time. When I move back, I am absolutely enamored to be back home and well, I haven't dated. So relationships are starting to happen. Um, I was working at one of my jobs in, in downtown Iowa City. And people used to nickname me the mayor because everywhere I go, I would know everybody. And I didn't understand the power in that. There's a flip side of being known in such a way or knowing everybody just because i know everybody that also means that i am known and if it means that i am known then it means that people are watching me and the things that i do are now subject to gossip Mm -hmm. (laughs) this is my hometown and almost anything that i might do would get back to my mother or my siblings. I might have been better off in Atlanta uh, if we're exploring our immaturity, trying to shed some immaturity. Again, um, I haven't dated and I start dating. And that's, it was a wonderful experience to be desired. And um, when you come from a place where you're pretty much ignored and then all of a sudden you come back and the only thing that's changed about you is your size. Well, there's two things, your size and your age. Um, That sometimes can go to your head. It can absolutely go to your head and it went to mine. I am a straight male and I liked the ladies. Um, I, yeah, that, and, and, and so the pursuit of uh, women kind of took over the things that I should have been doing. And um, I regret a lot of my uh, immature behavior because I wasn't thinking about necessarily all the steps that I might need to graduate and do well. I graduated. I knew I was going to graduate. I'm paying for school myself. No matter how long it took, I was going to get out of school. But I wasn't doing it in the best way. And this is where some of that mentorship might have made a big difference in terms of here's your established, these are your established study habits, much like what you were talking about. Right. Um, There was some very your brain works in some really strange ways. And one of them is this, you talked about scarcity. If you don't have the conversations that everything's going to turn out the way it's supposed to turn out. And you hear it from somebody who looks like you, who's been through some similar experiences, uh, scarcity, like, Oh, I'm not dating anybody right now. What in the world's wrong with me? I'm never going to date anybody. And these are the sorts of things that you can, focus in on a downward spiral really quickly and it can become obsessive. I have friends that dated all from elementary school through high school. And at times 
it was oh, wow we're gonna get into some stuff um they weren't some of the guys that the girls were going out with the girls that i to whom i was attracted and i i was attracted to all kinds of women uh in high school and in college but it was like the only thing that some of these guys had to be was white and that was it but many of the women to whom i was attracted uh fell under that term they that they he had to be white and that was it now um selfishly and maybe arrogantly i thought i was perhaps a better match and i know i'm kind of moving back and forth between junior i mean between high school and college but i'm kind does, of wanting to does it in the similar way that i talked about uh the consumerism you know you start to see it and you start to be tempted by it does the fact that you sort of societally can't have it tempt you oh yeah oh yeah and and some of these women <clears throat> whom i were attracted were were black some were uh more were white there were some who were asian but it was all at, at, in some very immature ways it was less about um deep more meaningful relationships and it was some very shallow um hey we overnight relationships yeah <laughs> college is when the most shallow relationships them seem to have taken place oh yes yes and there were some that were that could have been much better and possibly could have been great relationships for me but i did not have the emotional bandwidth for that and i know that's a term that's 21st century uh, as opposed to 20th century i'm and this is not an excuse i'm very much a little boy locked in uh emotionally at 11 years old in a grown man's body and that was not um that's not a a good place to be because you are acting like a child when i should be acting more adult what happens are i hurt people i hurt a lot of people and i was a jerk and maybe there will be some forgiveness because i was in college but i look back in a lot of ways and just feel awful about the manner in which and uh, the manner in which i hurt people I don't like that. I don't like that at all. So that first year back, I am working at the one of my very first job in Iowa City. And this tall, auburn-haired woman walks in, and we make eye contact, and I feel something in my gut. And we end up talking, and we start dating. Now, she is almost perfect in in a lot of respects. I'm 6'4", she's 6'1". She can wear my clothes without looking like a child. <laughs> she, she, had, she had some sweatshirts that I was like, you know, <laughs> that looks better on me than you. And we we went out for a while. At some point or another, um, we stopped as as we start to get past the mutual attractions we start to find out that our families know each other but her parents would have been irate if they'd found out that i was black guess who's coming for dinner oh and and to hear it articulated even though we are into each other, to hear that we are, um, that I can't date her because, well, well, we have to be on the down low because I'm black. 
hurts. It's 1986, uh, and that's a problem. I don't know at what point the relationship begins to change, but what 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 I do know is that I'm thinking she's the right one and she's a little bit older. She's three years older and she's starting to shift away from me. And I don't know why she's pulling away. We make it to the summer of 87 and I'm going to go out to Washington, DC. There's uh there's a story there well well i guess we can start up right there well i want to i know uh we might go a little bit longer than usual but i want to just ask when what's it like knowing that her family would not have approved and the other side was your family open did they meet her did were they more approving or did you both have to kind of hide it at that time my family if we dig back into the lessons that i'm taught as a kid um it was more about don't mess around with white girls because bad things can happen yeah and i'm okay with that uh in elementary school, though, we all want to be liked. Mm-hmm. And I know that I'm pretty much, there's this emotional intelligence that's growing inside me prior to dad's death. I know I'm intelligent, but I also want to be the object of somebody's crush. I want to be loved, mm-hmm. right? And I'm not seeing that and I don't know how to solve it. So there's this longing. Um, My fam eventually moves into a a more open-minded mindset and that's, and it's fine. But what doesn't happen is I get I never meet her parents. And not only do I not meet her parents, we have to be on the down low in a town the size of Iowa City. Right. So I can't refer to her necessarily as my girlfriend. Bunkers. Right. And if we do hang out, it's kind of discreet. Mm-hmm. So it's... So how are you feeling about all of that, though? It's kind of like a monogamous booty call. (laughs) There's not the emotional support of a relationship. There's not the, hey, babe, um, I fixed steaks for dinner. Um, Come over when you can. It was more, it was far more aloof. Um, There wasn't the, there wasn't the, instant access that we have now with cell phones it wasn't texting or anything like that this is the 80s so if there was any phone call it might come from a payphone those things happened or it might very well be a from a landline and you're calling and you're expecting somebody to be there right there might be voicemail or not voicemail there an answering machine because you purchased a, f- a phone with an answering machine function okay. that that will uh, pick up your calls. At that time, though, I was willing to settle for that because I didn't know better, but it didn't feel good. Right. It didn't feel good. And again, if you know everybody, that means a lot of people know you too. And mm. the things that you do get seen and i was thinking i was much like my white peers that it didn't really matter what i did because why do people care about the things that i do when look at that guy that guy's doing this that the other thing and he's doing it twice on sundays why are you judging me oh 
the things that I wish 56-year-old Corey could tell that iteration of Corey. Oh, my gosh. Right. And there are, I'm still involved with church, and my faith is something that is important, but I'm discerning. And again, much like you talked about college being this, this time of discernment where you're trying to figure out who you are, religion seems very restrictive in terms of the exploration. And uh, this may not endear me to anybody, but it's truthful. And I'm questioning, what's this all about? How do we get from this religious place to these seemingly happy, fulfilled lives without doing this work, without stepping into mud puddles, without having the experience to create the wisdom that says, hey, you know what? That's not a really good move. And that's where we are. This relationship doesn't feel good. But it's the relationship I'm in. And I don't understand why we, why I'm not important. And the, the, the kind of bunkered booty call thing is, is what I'm settling for settling i'm settling for this and settling means i have a choice and that's why there's a couple of decisions that i make before i go to washington dc nice way to <coughs> hook us back in for next time oh jd this has been a, an hour and change of some deep deep stories. And I don't have, I, mean, I got to tell you, I don't have the stories like you got. I'm sitting here on the edge of my seat going, and what happens next? And All what right. happens next? Well, I also, you know, come from a larger city where there's more possibilities of that to happen. I'm sure the, the basis of the city being this prestigious University of Iowa, they're not they're going to have some uh, more influence on what comes in and goes out as well. And that, yeah. Right. Whereas in the larger city settings, there's a lot, many more layers of dynamics of uh, what goes in and comes out. That's very true to our audience. Again, I want to tell you that all of this is unscripted. These are conversations that JD and I are having as we get to learn about each other and we get to understand each other, these are happening in the exact same moments that you are hearing us. All of it, completely unscripted. Absolutely. They are our stories and they make up same difference as we all do. Right. I highly recommend that if you have questions about us, the things that we were thinking, the things that we were feeling, drop us the email. You can you can drop us an email at JD. Tell us. <laughs> same, same difference. Broadcast at gmail.com. That's same difference. Broadcast at gmail.com. You can also access that from same difference dot dot life, life yeah. as well. Wow. And follow us on our social media. Oh, which I still don't quite remember all the underscores, but uh, if you look us up and you see the diamond, black top, white bottom, you found the right place. Pass it along. Spread the word. We appreciate you. Like it give us feedback uh oh. we're gonna we're gonna keep this party going next week and uh thank you sir no, thank you friends thanks for tuning in to same difference podcast yes thank you for tuning in to another inspiring episode of same difference 
We hope this journey through unique connections and diverse perspectives has left you with fresh insights and a broader understanding of the world we share. We're humbled by your support and enthusiasm for the incredible stories and discussions we've shared. And remember, our mission is to foster critical thinking, embrace new perspectives, and spark conversations that bring us closer to an equitable world. So, if you've enjoyed our podcast, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us. Your feedback means the world to us and it helps us reach even more listeners. And if you have a story to share or a topic you'd like us to explore, don't hesitate to get in touch. We're always looking for new voices and fresh perspectives to feature on Same Difference. Until next time, remember that our shared humanity is our most powerful asset. And by working together, we can bring about positive change. Stay curious, stay compassionate, and keep making a difference. Thank you for being a part of Same Difference. Take care, everyone. See you in the next episode.